So I have brought you to Manning United Methodist Church. This is the place where I first started in ministry. Right in this pulpit, I preached my very first sermon. And hear me, church, it was bad. No, I'm, it was really, really bad. You might just think that's some self-deprecation, but I have the sermon on a cassette tape, and it was horrible. But the beautiful people of this church actually loved me, and they received a wrecked prodigal who was still very new in the faith, still dripping from the waters of baptism. They hired me and let me be their student pastor. And I started teaching the students in this church and very quickly was invited to preach on a Sunday morning in this sanctuary. This is the place where I was discipled and trained and taught by a one such Steve Sugar, who taught me how to stay unapologetically committed to this bedrock foundational truth of our faith that Jesus is the only way. Yet while at the same time learning to love people wherever they are and realize some people might not believe that. And if indeed and in fact God gave people the choice, God gave people the option as to whether or not they truly believe there is only one way then I must also do the very same. You see, the reality is we live in a culture where objective truth is no longer upheld as a reality and more and more people are embracing this notion that you can have a truth and so long as you believe it is objective truth, it's truth for you. And I can have an objective truth and so long as I believe it to be objectively true, it's truth for me. But have you ever really stopped to think about that for just a moment? You cannot have two diametrically opposing truths and they both be true. And yet that is the day and age that we live in today. And in chapter six of Wrecked and Redeemed, I talk about the biblical truth that there is only one way to a redeemed life. There is only one way to an authentic relationship with God, and there is only one way to heaven, and his name is Jesus. So the question becomes, how do we live in this tricky culture, this culture of truthiness, declaring unapologetically that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, while at the same time loving and not judging other people. And so as we move through this chapter, this theme, let us hold unswervingly to the truth of the gospel. In fact, let us remember Romans 12, where the Bible says this, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so church, it is in tricky times like this where we hold fast to the rock solid belief that there is only one way to God, one way to heaven and we swing wide our arms and we love anyone and everyone regardless of what they believe. And we are a church that will see people come in amongst us. And even though they might not believe what we believe, they can belong in this church. They can come and be with us because we believe that in time. As we continue to preach the gospel, we continue to hold fast to the sacred, authoritative, truthful teachings of scripture. God will continue to move powerfully, breaking down walls, breaking down defenses, and we will see wrecked prodigals redeemed by the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord.
Come on, keep that going on the count of three. I want you to welcome all the campuses and our awesome Monday night crowd. One, two, three. Welcome to all the campuses. We are one church in many locations. So glad you are here. Um, I just want to let you know that a big group of us, 42 of us to be exact, uh, just landed back into central North Carolina from being over in the Holy Land. So I was literally on a plane 13 hours yesterday, and um, I, I'm liable to fall asleep during the message. <laughs> have you ever, have you, as a pastor, I've never seen a preacher fall asleep during his own message. That'd be bad. That'd be bad, but it might happen today. Actually, I don't think it will. I'm fired up about this message. But this group just came back from the Holy Land. Check it out. This group right here, it was an amazing, amazing experience. Uh, we're looking over Caesarea um, by the sea right here. This is where in Acts, by the way, and look at the diversity of that group. The thing that blew all the people that we came into contact with in the Holy Land, the thing that blew their mind, including our guide, because they see church groups come over here, billions of dollars come into this area due to church groups going and visiting the Holy Land. The thing that blew people's mind the most was that there was actually a church that came over that was beautifully diverse and fully represented God's created order. How cool is that? And it is right in this area where the book of Acts says, and, and God's word says to Peter, Peter, don't you call anything unclean that I have created? Because all that I've created, God says, is clean. Let the church say amen. That was at the very beginning of our trip. At the very end of our trip, we went to the garden tomb where Jesus was uh, buried. You see that right there on the right-hand side. You see that little hole back in there. That's the garden tomb. That's outside the city gates. There's two locations where people think Jesus might have been buried. I personally believe it is this location over the Church of the Sepulchre. This is outside the city gates. They took Jesus outside towards the garbage pile, if you will, because they were, they were just chalking him up as garbage. They wanted to kill him, and they crucified him. And buried him right there. And I got news for you, by the way. Come on, listen. In. I went there. Guess what? His body is still not there. <laughs> Come on. He is resurrected. He is risen from the grave. And I don't know if that reminds you of Easter, but it surely does me. Here's Easter. It's just a few weeks away. A few weeks away. You got all the campuses here. We don't have the Kenya campus. We really don't even hardly have room for it. But you got the Durham campus, Garner, Sanford, Columbia, Wake Forest. Speak to the Durham crowd, Monday night crowd here more than anything. Saturday, we got a celebration on April 20th at four. Then we have a sunrise service at 6.30 outside in the parking lot, watching the sunrise with Holy Communion. So if that's your cup of tea, come on out at 6.30. Then we've got 8.30 or 10.30. Some might wanna come to the sunrise service and one of the other services because it's different. One's outside, one's inside. That is perfectly fine. But let me just say that if you're kind of open to where you might go, let me encourage you to come on Saturday. Come on Saturday and celebrate Easter and or come to this sunrise or maybe this 8.30 one. But I'm just telling you, this, this, this celebration right here, this 10.30 one, will be slammed bonkers. And so if you can help us out, maybe pick one of those other ones. Uh, folks have still been asking, you guys are buying the book like crazy. Um, we just placed another order of books. I think there's still a few left, but we got more of these coming. But the main thing I want to tell you uh, was that on Easter Sunday morning, the worship pastors, y'all know they've been singing these original songs. Well, they've turned it into a CD and you will be able to pick it up on Easter Sunday. Come on. There it is. Wrecked and redeemed album is available Easter Sunday morning. Love, 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 love those guys. It is some good, good music. They've done a phenomenal job. So after being on the plane all that time, I touched down at RDU and I hit, hit my phone up and I, I started scheduling a Lyft driver. Y'all know about this? Lyft. How, how, many of you, how many of you are Uber people? You're Uber? 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 Show of hands, Uber people? Not that many. How many of you are Lyft people? Lyft people. See, this, this celebration is smarter than the other celebration. Don't tell them I said that. Um, and the other celebration, it was flipped, but I just want to let you know, I've done them both, and, and I have left Uber in the dust. Glory to God. Lyft is where it's at. I'm just telling you. I mean, you can take me at my word. You can keep doing Uber, where they pick you up in dirty, trashy cars, and you don't know if you're going to make it out alive. I'm just saying. Lyft is where it's at. I digress. When I got into the car with my Lyft driver yesterday, he was still plugging uh, my address in, and he was looking at different options on how to get to my house. And I, I just got to thinking about that on the way home. You know, we like options, don't we? When you get in your car and you throw an address in, we all do GPS day. By the way, could you imagine? How did we ever make it? 
I, like, I, I really don't even know how we ever made it without GPS. I do remember back in the days, every now and then throwing up a big old atlas. Remember that? And then you got to go to your state and then you got to find your city. But you had options back then. I used to sketch them out, right? You could highlight them and circle them. But like, we, we like options. When you put an address into your GPS, you get options. And the options typically tell you about how the traffic flow is and what the time is. And if you're like me, you always pick the shortest one. Right? And so we like options. We are a culture obsessed with options. Have you thought about this? Even with things like your toothpaste. You love options. I do too. How many deodorant options can we even consider, right? We, we like options with things like that. We like options with the cars we buy or lease. We just like options. Which is why chapter six of Wrecked and Redeemed is a chapter that is very confrontational. It's, it swims against the stream, if you will, of a postmodern, universal, pluralistic society. It's this verse right here, and I can just tell you guys are with me today out loud. Let's read it. Ready? Go. Jesus answered, I am the, and the, and the, no one comes to the Father except through me. That verse is foundational in the gospel. It's unequivocal in the biblical narrative, and yet it smacks right in the face of our culture because we are a culture that is obsessed with options, not just options, options with many things like toothpaste or deodorant. We like options with religion. But I got to break it to you. And I realize this might not feel good to some of you. But it's not my job to make you feel good. It's my job to preach what the Bible teaches. And I got to break it to you. If you could, you can't, or maybe some of you might do this. This might be fascinating. Put heaven in your GPS system. If you could, <laughs> I've never done it. No telling what will come up. But if you could put heaven in your GPS system, listen, don't miss this. There is only one way. There is only one route to heaven. And his name is Jesus. And I realize that some of this today, I just want to go ahead and acknowledge some of this is going to feel abrasive to you. Some of this is going to feel kind of so old school. Some of this is going to feel like, you know, 1982. I don't know. And you're going to be like, I don't know if I agree with that. And I just want to acknowledge that on the front end because we have been so inundated. We have been so indoctrinated with pluralism, with the idea that we are going to get to heaven one way or another, and it doesn't matter what you believe or I believe, and we can all just float around like a bunch of little feathers in Forrest Gump, and when it's all said and done, we're just all gonna get to heaven one day, and we're gonna hold hands and sing Kumbaya. <laughs> and again, it's my calling to let you know that nothing could be farther from the truth. Some of you are like, what in the world is this? So... Yeah, um, this, my dear friends, is the nativity scene that I bought in Bethlehem seven years ago. Because I was back there this week, it got me thinking about this again and again. I tell this story in the book. I know I haven't been hitting a lot of the stories in the book because you can buy the book and read it. I don't want to do that, but this, I had to tell this one. Seven years ago, we were in the Holy Land. And um, we went into Bethlehem, and because I know this family, the group that I just took this week met this family. A lot of them bought some stuff this week. I didn't buy anything this week because I spent enough money in 2012 to last me a lifetime. You would not believe what this costs. I will tell you this, though. In 2012, I negotiated the price of this for three hours. Three hours. I walked out of the shop multiple times and they ran me down. The owner ran me down the sidewalk and I kept negotiating and negotiating. And finally, after three hours of negotiating, I am proud to let you know that I got the price down 55 to 60% off the ticket price. Women, you should be praising God. I know how you like your sales. Men are like, so what, dude? Like, if you're like me, I, I hate the shop. Anybody else with me? I hate to shop, but I'm the kind of guy that when I know I want something, like I'm going to get it. And so the first time I saw this, 
I knew I wanted it, and it's, it's the best olive wood shop in all of the Holy Land. The, there are Christians who own the shop. They hand carve this stuff, and you pay for it. I bought this in 2012, and every Christmas, if you've been coming to the Durham campus anyway, you know that we put this out in the rotunda. A lot of you have stood and seen this, and normally throughout the year, I get buyer's remorse. I'm like, oh, should, I don't know if I should have paid that much. But then I look around at Christmas and I see all of you gathering around this, ooing and aahing and taking pictures with your family members. And I think, hey, it, I, I'm glad I bought it. A few years ago, I was in my office right here in the Durham campus building when an email popped up. I had my computer in front of me and the email came up at that particular time. And uh, I started scanning the email and I realized right away this was not a good email. I usually don't read emails like that. Here was the email address from which the email came. I stole baby Jesus at gmail.com. <laughs> and, and, and she said, delete. I should have. I should have. But I, I, I actually saw it. And I, like I said, I usually don't open those up. But I knew that the nativity scene in all of its glory was out in the rotunda. I knew the cattle, they were doing what cattle do. I knew the wise men were hanging out with the frankincense and the myrrh. I knew Joseph and Mary were looking abound upon Jesus. And I saw, I stole baby Jesus at gmail.com. And I'm not proud to let you know, I went into meltdown mode. I'm not proud. This is the most embarrassing, self-deprecating story I could ever tell you. I am so embarrassed to let you know that I immediately freaked out. Remember what I paid for this. And at that particular time, this might sound like I'm making excuses, so be it. It's my story, but I'm sticking to it. <laughs> at that point in time, I was under a lot of pressure. We had been taking some hits. I'm always taking hits. You probably know that, but I was taking a lot of hits during that particular season. Spiritual warfare was sky high. People were coming at me. Neighbors didn't like the church because of the traffic jams. It was bad. And so I thought, oh, snap. <laughs> Somebody stole baby Jesus. I'm not kidding. So I got up. I didn't even finish reading the email. And I left my office and I came around and I walked into the rotunda and there the nativity scene was and I had to maneuver myself to get around the big old straw thing that facilities puts out every year. And I looked up and sure enough, he was gone. And again, I taught, I've taught leadership lessons over the years that when things start to go bad, if you're a leader, listen closely. When life gets hairy or you and your team are under hard times, as the leader, you must always stay calm. They look at you for cues. I'm not proud to say I failed miserably that day. I look around and staff are looking at me from afar. I'm in the rotunda. I realize Jesus is not in here. So I put a fake smile on my face. I walk back to my office. My heart is beating. I am literally thinking, somebody took Jesus. Christmas might not happen this year because somebody took Jesus. And so then I went back to the email and I started reading the email. They left me a ransom note. Do you want to see it? Yes, I, I knew you would. I must say that I was impressed with your nativity scene in your building. The past few weeks, I was so impressed that I wanted a piece of the action. I wanted to get Christmas. Do y'all remember that? That was a sermon series we did. Christmas. And I challenged everybody to go out and Christmas somebody that December. Christmas somebody. Give them a gift. Bless them. Do something. Christmas them. This no good sorry <laughs> is using my own series to freak me out. I keep scrolling. So I Christmased myself. There's a special place in you know where for people like this. I'm just kidding, just kidding. I waited for the right opportunity. Listen to the sacrilegious sarcasm coming out of this person. I waited for the right opportunity and chased little baby Jesus all over your building until finally corralling him in all of his hand-carved glory. He's a fast, busy little guy for a wooden Christ. Now, at this point in time, I want to find the person. I'm about to go Old Testament on him right here, right here. He, he or she's not done. Look, 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 look. To whom much is given, much is required. They're quoting scripture after me, after stealing my Jesus. Get you some of this. 
a ransom must now be paid. I went into meltdown mode. I, I literally thought, oh, okay, they're gonna want million dollars for a little wooden Jesus. If I don't get what I want, your little wooden baby Jesus gets it. <laughs> Who is this sick person? It'll be in touch, I'll be in touch soon regarding details of the ransom required for you to get your Jesus back safe and sound. Church, I still can't believe I fell for it. So I immediately jump up. I'm all hacked off. I go and grab a couple of executive leaders and we get in the office and we shut the door. And I remember saying to them, guys, Christmas is in jeopardy because we don't have baby Jesus. Where's Jesus? And my wife, who knew what I had been going through, she started to fall for it a little bit too. And she's like, I bet it was, I bet it was that person. I bet it was this person. And we, start, we started thinking, man, we started figuring out who took baby Jesus. And it got, it got tense, if you know what I mean. And so finally, I started to step out of myself and pay attention to what was going on in the room. It was a group of executive leaders, like I said. And finally, I noticed one of them. He was, he was being awfully quiet. he started to realize that his little joke was not a joke anymore. You ever seen somebody get so flustered that their skin starts turning red? I watched his neck slowly turn red. I watched, I knew, I knew something was up when I saw a sweat bead form right here and it started running down his face and I said, bro, did you? did you take baby Jesus? And he reached into his desk and he pulled out baby Jesus. <laughs> and at that time, my wife and the other executive leader, who I will not name, though she sits over here to my right, Fran Helpestein. At that point in time, Fran and Amy Lynn stood up at the same time. And I think it was Fran, she goes, we're gonna leave you two boys to deal with this on your own. <laughs> and within about five minutes, we were hooting and hollering and laughing, and it has now become affectionately known as the Jesus heist of New Hope Church. Now, when the facilities team pulls it, you can't see this. Maybe if the cameras get close, you can, they have actually hooked a seatbelt on baby Jesus. <laughs> can you see that? It's a little metal, little metal seatbelt right there. And, and they, they strap him in every year. They strap him in and they fix a security camera right on him. But the reason I, <laughs> the reason, the reason I include it in, in the story is because I had this epiphany after I got my blood pressure down and we started laughing about it. Without him, this means nothing. Without Jesus, listen, listen, we shouldn't be here today. We, we're, it's a royal waste of our time. Without Jesus, the church has no business doing what it does, preaching what it preaches, serving how it serves, and loving people as it loves. And the message that John 14:6 thrust our way is that whether or not you like it, the reality is that Jesus clearly taught and the Bible clearly teaches that it runs throughout the entire biblical narrative that it all points towards Jesus. And without Jesus, there is no salvation. Without Jesus, there is no eternity. A.W. Tozer, who I, you know I'm a big fan of, he put it like this. Jesus is not one of many ways to approach God, nor is he the best of several ways he is the only way. Now, the problem is, though, in our culture is that that's not popular. Very few people believe that anymore. In fact, the moment you start to ind indicate, particularly in a public arena, on a network or whatever, that you actually believe that and you actually believe this Bible, you will be stiff-armed. You will be cut out of mainline conversations. These are tricky days that we live in, church. 
Relativism is at an all-time high. Do you know what I mean when I say relativism? It's basically the postmodern notion that you can have your truth and I can have my truth. And it doesn't matter that we might have manufactured those own truth uh, propositions. It doesn't matter if your truth might be diametrically opposed to my truth. So long as it's your truth and it works for you, it is heralded and even worshiped and lifted up and exalted in our culture. Relativism, if you just go to Webster, this is the definition of it. It's a theory that knowledge or belief is relative, relative to the limited nature of the mind and the conditions of knowing. The second definition that Webster gives is this. It's a view that ethical truths depend on the individuals and groups holding them. Now listen, that's in the water we drink. And yet it runs completely contrary to the teachings of scripture. You cannot have your own version of truth and I have my own version of truth and they be diametrically opposed and they both be true. Just by sheer process of deduction, that doesn't work. It's a relative society that we live in. And so what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to get you to put your thinking caps on today. I want you to grab your teaching notes and grab your pen and follow along with me today. Because I am a firm believer that it takes as much faith to be an atheist as it does a believer. Did you hear that? Like, as I've studied all these years, as I've been to the Holy Land and I've looked at apologetic approaches and I've studied scriptures and I've read all kind of extra canonical resources, I'm just a firm believer. Nobody says this, but I just really believe it takes as much faith to be an atheist or an agnostic as it does for so many of you who believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so I want to get you to just think about some things today because there is a way to look at this from sheerly a mental perspective so that you don't have to think it's just got to be blind faith. You've heard that all your life, right? Just believe, blind faith. And I believe there's a place for blind faith. But I believe there's an also a place for intelligent, articulate, smart people to consider things and actually come to the conclusion that you are not an idiot, despite what our culture tries to teach you, you are not an idiot to believe that Jesus Christ was God. Here's the first one. Here's the first one. Jesus Jesus said many different things about himself. I'm going to give you only three of three of the, what I believe is the most important. Here's the first one. Write it in. Fill in the blank. Jesus said he was the Messiah. Jesus said he was what? He said he was the Messiah. Jesus started his ministry at approximately the age 30. In his very first sermon, his inaugural sermon, we find it in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter four. Jesus goes into the synagogue. Jesus was a good, upstanding Jewish boy, raised in a Jewish family. Historically, there's no denying that Jesus existed as a historical person. Nobody denies that anymore. Jesus goes into the synagogue one day, and they ask him to stand up to teach. They give him the scroll from the Old Testament prophet by the name of Isaiah. It's that powerful passage where ancient Israel had been looking forward to the Messiah. And it says this, God's spirit is upon me. Jesus is reading this. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, release to the captives, sight to the blind, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You got it? Jesus then rolls up the scroll, sits down. And this is how Luke records it going down. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Everybody's watching Jesus. They've heard about him. He just read this prophetic messianic text. He began by saying to them, what's this word right here? Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus left no doubt in his intention and who he believed he was. He proclaimed himself to be the Messiah of the world, the one who stepped 
into human history and fulfilled all of the prophecy that we find in the Old Testament. Not only did he say it, because here's what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, well, anybody can say that. Anybody can claim I am he. Jesus not only said he was the Messiah. Listen, he backed it up. As we like to say, he put his money where his mouth was. You're like, what are you talking about? Let me show you. I'm only going to show you five prophecies that Jesus clearly fulfilled. How many? Listen, there are 60. There are 60 Old Testament prophets. I, I think you can actually say a little bit more than that, but some of them are a little, you know, it's a little gray. It's a stretch. So there are 60 clear prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus clearly fulfilled in the New Testament. I'm going to give you five of them, and then I'm going to blow your mind with some probability as we look at this. Here's the first one. The Messiah would be born where, church? Oh, little town of Bethlehem. I'm going to stop. Bethlehem. Micah 5, 2. Luke 2, the Christmas story. Old Testament prophet said he would be born in Bethlehem. Where was he born? In Bethlehem. Prophecy number one. Here's the second one. The Messiah would be born of a virgin. Hello. Still blows my mind. I know it takes faith to believe this. This is even uh, greater than the prediction that he would be born in Bethlehem. Mary was with Joseph, betrothed, remember? But the Bible clearly teaches she was a virgin. They had not had sex. And so the Old Testament says the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Go read Matthew 1, 23. It's right there. Third prophecy. The Messiah would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. That comes from Zechariah 11, 11. Go read Matthew 27. Prophecy fulfilled. Let's continue. Number four, the Messiah would be afflicted, yet not open his mouth. Isaiah 53. Go read Mark 15. In Mark 15, Jesus is brought before Pontius Pilate. We were just there this week. We went to all these places. The Bible is very clear. Jesus did not open his mouth in that moment. Last one that I'm going to show you today, but there are 60. Five, the Messiah's garments would be divided by casting lots. You find that in Psalm 22. Open up the New Testament to John's gospel, which we're in mainly during this Wrecked and Redeemed series. And you find right there in John 19, 23, and 24, you find that that is exactly what happened. That's just five prophecies that he fulfilled. He fulfilled how many? 60. In 1960s, there was a great scholar by the name of Peter Stoner. Peter Stoner in the 19th. Could you imagine having a name, Stoner? But I digress. <laughs> 1960s, Peter Stoner was the chairman of mathematics and astronomy at Pasadena City College. He figured out the odds of Jesus fulfilling eight prophecies. I gave you five. There are 60. He figured out the probability of Jesus only fulfilling eight of those in a book titled, you might want to write this down. Some of you would really enjoy reading this. Science Speaks. Science Speaks is the name of the book. In the book, they determined, now watch this, boom, blow your mind. They determined the probability of only eight of the prophecies being fulfilled by a single person was one in 10 to the 17th power. That is that number. <laughs> you know what that number is? 100 quadrillion. The probability of one person fulfilling just eight of the prophecies was one in 100 quadrillion. Now, let me just unpack that a little bit for you, just in, 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 in more practical, tangible um, terms. If you go to the state of Texas, how many, how many of you have been to Texas? How many of you have been to? Ooh, all of you have been there. How many of you are from Texas. Texas forever, baby. That's what I'm talking about. Clear eyes, full heart, what? Can't lose. Anyway, I digress big time. If you haven't seen Friday Night Lights, you need Jesus and you need to watch that. Um, 
If you go to Texas, Texas is a big old state. You ever try to drive across Texas? Forever. Thank God they got some speed limits around 90 miles an hour in some parts of Texas. Praise God. Anyway, if you go to Texas, it's a big old state. Imagine taking 100 quadrillion silver dollars. And if you take 100 quadrillion silver dollars, this is what Stoner did in his book. He, he laid all this out. This is all research-based. If you were to take 100 quadrillion silver dollars and you were to spread them across the state of Texas, they would be about two feet tall across the entire state. If you're tracking with me, say, keep going. Then if you were to take one silver dollar, just one, and you were to mark it, well, let's say a permanent marker, and what shall we mark it with? In honor of Texas, let's say a star. You mark that silver dollar with a star. You put it in those 100 quadrillion silver dollars, mix it all up, and spread it across the state of Texas. And then you were to take a friend, and you were to blindfold your friend, him or her, and you were to drop them anywhere in Texas they wanted to be dropped. And they only had one rule. You could take as long as you want. You can't see you're blindfolded. You can take as long as you want. And you have one option to pick up a silver dollar. The probability of Jesus fulfilling just eight prophecies would be like that friend of yours blindfolded picking up one of those 100 quadrillion silver dollars and it being the one that was marked. That was the probability of what Jesus did. And that's just eight prophecies. You are not an idiot to believe in the gospel. You are actually one of the few smartest people on the planet. He is Messiah. He is worthy of life. He is worthy of praise. He is worthy of worship. He is worthy of our lives. He is worthy of everything that we have. He is Lord. Nobody like him. Not only did he say he was the Messiah, write it in. Now, these prophecies were either given by inspiration of God or the prophets just wrote them as they felt they should be. Watch this. In either case, the prophets had just one chance in 10 to the 17th of having them come true in any man. But they all came true in Christ. Praise his name, church. He's worthy of every praise that we have, write it in the second thing. Jesus said he was God. He said he was Messiah. That's Old Testament fulfillment of the Messiah that ancient Israel had been looking forward to. Secondly, he said he was what? Jesus said he was God. Let me talk to you about that for just a moment. If you remember a few weeks ago, we looked at John chapter eight. <clears throat> and in John chapter eight, Jesus encounters the woman caught in adultery. Do you remember that? They bring the woman to Jesus. They say that she should be stoned due to the law. Jesus kneels down, writes in the sand. Then he looks at her and he says, tells them to leave if you haven't sinned. And they all start leaving. Jesus looks at her and he says, where have they gone? She says, they, they're not here. He goes, well, neither do I condemn you. But go and what? It's that grace and truth thing. But in that very same chapter, Maybe you missed it before. You are from below. I am from above. This is Jesus. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not what? If you do not believe that I am he. You will indeed die in your sins, dead. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. So not only did he make this bold declaration that I am Messiah, he said, I am God. And it was one of the things that bothered the religious leaders the most. They could accept that Jesus was a good person. They even started to accept the fact that he was an amazing rabbi because the crowds just flocked to him. 
But when he started saying that he was actually God, that's when it started getting intense and that's when they started to figure out, we better kill this guy. Remember John chapter one, the very first chapter in the book and the very first chapter in John's gospel? Remember where we talked about the word becoming flesh and I put that diagram in front of you about the word and the logos? This text right here. Let's read it out loud together. In the beginning was the, and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This is John chapter one. Bold claims about Jesus. Let's continue. All things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. That's a mind twister, but stick with me. But this is that great, great lesson that we taught the very first week. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of full of grace and truth. The Israelites had longed for and anticipated the arrival of the Messiah, but they had not expected the Messiah to be God himself in the flesh, full of grace and truth. Number three, write it in. Jesus said he was the only way to the Father. Like no loopholes, no prophetic loopholes, no religious loopholes. Jesus said he was the what church? Only way to the Father. Back to the verse that we read in the beginning. Out loud, go. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now that's the NIV translation. Some people ask me, what's your favorite translation? I read the NIV, New International Version. It's a great translation. But this is one of those instances where I'm a big fan of the Amplified Bible translation. A lot of people read Amplified, and it's a great translation as well. With this particular verse, I believe this is where the Amplified version gets it right as I've studied the original language. Watch this. This is how the Amplified puts it. Jesus said, I am the only way to God and the real truth and the real life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Only way. Real truth. Real life. Abundant life. Eternal life. Only in and through Jesus. Only. To which I know what you're thinking. Darn, pastor, that feels mighty narrow-minded. It does. I, I agree. But I don't get to pick and choose who God is. Come, I, see, see, one of the lies of post-modernity is that we can manufacture and create God in whatever image we see fit, and then we end up worshiping that God. But whenever you can create and manufacture God in whatever image you see fit, have you noticed that as a human, human race, we actually start to worship self because we've created God in the image that we think God should be instead of in the image of what God says God is. You better say it. You got that right. <laughs> you say, that's narrow-minded, man. I don't know. I don't know that I believe that. You're right. You're right. Which is why Jesus said this. <laughs> Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and what, what, what? narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. So if you think it's narrow-minded, you think it's kind of exclusionary. Listen, the gospel is totally inclusionary. 
Let one, let all, let anyone and everyone come. It's completely inclusionary, but it is 100% exclusionary. It's only through Jesus that you come. What do you do with that? Like every single one of you, me included, all of us have to decide at some point in time, what do we do with Jesus's words? Like, what, what have you done with it? Have you, have you decided what you believe? Are you just gonna go the way of postmodern relativism or universalism, which means it doesn't matter what you believe. Again, we're just all floating around, all gonna get to heaven one day, all kinds of roads lead there in the GPS. We're all going to heaven, doesn't matter. Or are you going to put your stake, your hope, in Jesus and Jesus alone? Many of you have heard me um, talk about C.S. Lewis. I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan. If I was probably giving, hey, man, if you, had, if you could sit down with a couple great Christian leaders and have coffee, who would you pick? Uh, C.S. Lewis would be up there. Um, the Apostle Paul would be up there. Um, John Wesley would be up there, guys that I hold in great esteem. You've heard me talk about C.S. Lewis before, and some of you have probably heard me say this, or maybe you've heard it at churches. This is a, a really uh, popularly used story. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he actually talked about Jesus, and he said, at the end of the day, he was either Lord, liar, or lunatic. What? Lord, liar, or lunatic. As you read the Gospels, he was, he was either Lord, or he was just a good liar, or he was just a crazy man. He's just cray-cray, right? And so that, that, you've heard that before. But what I want to do now is, as I wrap up, I want to take you deeper into that great seminal work titled Mere Christianity. And I want you to read another part around there. It's not the Lord liar lunatic, but to me, it's, it's, this is golden. C.S. Lewis said this. I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really <laughs> foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That, C.S. Lewis says, is the one thing that we must not say. And you're like, why? Stick with me. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil or hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Now this last, last slide, don't miss this. This is so good. But let us not come with patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that option open to us. So for those of you who showed up today and you came and you, you've staked your life on Christ, like you believe, and that's most of you. You know what I'd say to you? You are some of the smartest people on the planet. You are some of the few, though, who will receive and know exactly what it means to be a saved, redeemed child of God. Again, I humbly believe it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does a believer in Jesus Christ. So for the believers in the house, you inspire me and I am right there with you. I've done the research. I've done the study. I've been there. I've bought the t-shirt and there is nothing that compares to the overwhelming 
biblical and extra biblical advice that suggests that Jesus was Messiah. He was God. And it is only in and through him that we have a relationship with God here on planet earth. And it is only in and through him that we will step from this world into the next and experience heaven forever. Now, for those of you who might be here and you've not staked your hope, your peace, your purpose, the forgiveness of your sins, eternity on Jesus. Maybe, just maybe, something has clicked inside of you today. Maybe, just maybe, today is your day when you want to say, you know what? I believe. I'm, I'm convinced. And I want to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Here's what I want to do. I want to pray a prayer with you right now. And I want to give you an opportunity to say, you know what? I'm tired of doubting. I'm tired of listening to the naysayers. I'm going to put my faith and my trust and my hope and my life and my sins and my eternity in the loving arms of a God who sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross for me that I might know him. Will you pray with me? Heads bowed, eyes closed. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for um, the beauty of the gospel. <laughs> thank you for saving us, God. Thank you for, thank you for the teachings of Scripture. Thank you for the prophecies fulfilled. And God, thank you for my brothers and sisters who know you. They love you. God, may those who came knowing you already, may they be encouraged. May they be inspired. May they believe and know that they haven't fallen for some hoax. They actually have locked into the one and only way to God the Father and heaven itself. But Lord, for those who've come and they're just not sure, maybe they've never had that moment and they're sitting here and they believe, God, something has happened. Like the Apostle Paul, maybe scales have fallen from their eyes and they see more clearly that there is no one, not one, greater to put our hope and our faith and our trust in than Jesus. If that's you and you're ready, the Bible says you have to be born again. That looks like just believing in Jesus, putting your faith and your trust in him. So if this is your moment, our church doesn't want to move ahead to an amazing final song without actually inviting you to go there with us. If that's you and you desire a relationship with Jesus, just pray a simple prayer like this in your heart. Say, Lord Jesus, I receive you. I believe this gospel good news. I believe that you came from heaven, you lived among us, you died on a cross, and you rose to new life. And so I invite you, Lord Jesus, into my heart today. Thank you for taking over my mind, even in this message today, Lord, that I, I actually believe and I've moved from my mind to my heart. It's often been said the distance between heaven and hell is about 18 inches between your brain and your heart. So I believe today, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins Help me follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, I pray. And the New Hope people of God said together, amen, amen and amen. Hey, if you just prayed that prayer, see this, this is our church. If you just prayed that prayer, wherever you are, wherever you are, we celebrate you. Welcome to the family of God.